anything? Okay. All right. Well, a few weeks ago, we started looking at God, the sovereignty of God over, uh, over nature. Then we looked at the sovereignty of God over time. We looked at supernatural. God, has super, God supernaturally superseded time for Joshua when he was fighting in that war. And also for King Hezekiah when the, the time went back, when he went, the shadow went back 10 steps. We pointed out, uh, looked at a few prophecies and how it's easier for God to prophesy than it is uh, for the weatherman to predict the weather here in Avery County, unless he says rain every day lately, because I mean, that's pretty been easy lately. But because he's the Alpha and Omega, he's the beginning and the end, he knows everything at the same time all the time. He just knows everything. So God is sovereign over time, but today I want to look about how God is sovereign in our lives, okay? Start off with, I want to tell you a little story of God's sovereign plan and working in my life. Once I had a lot of stories to tell, I think just one today, but years ago before I knew Holly and we were, uh, it was back in Bible college days, uh, we lived about seven hours from Boston, so sometimes we would get bored of life or wanted just to venture out. We'd just say, hey, Dad, can we go to Boston? And he'd usually let us, he'd say, go, go ahead, go. So it was my brother and I, my friend, Greg Boyce, the one that just recently passed away, we um, decided we're going to go to Boston. And my dad graduated from Eastern Nazarene College with his master's degree. And so we just called up the school and said, hey, we're prospective students for your school. Uh, can we come check it out so we could have a free place to stay? We didn't have a college. We didn't have much money. So we, we had no desire to go there at all. We were already in Bible college. But we told them that, and we got to stay there for free. So we're on campus, touring around Boston and stuff. Don't judge me. I mean, you, do, you would do it too. Okay? Let's say you would do that. Anyway, I thought it was a good idea. Didn't cost them any money either. My dad plus paid them enough for his master's degree. But anyway, we uh, we would, um, went through ta- to school and we're flirting with girls, mostly Greg and Ro- Robin, because I would never do that. But uh, <laughs> but they were flirting with girls and just having fun and, and stuff like that. And and then it was time to go back. And uh, I don't know what we did because we really didn't have much money. We've gone past. We went to see the Celtics play, the Red Sox, the Bruins or something. But this time we just didn't do a whole lot. We just wanted to get out of town. So it was time to go back home. We and our friends, Greg's car, were driving back. We got into Maine, and somewhere along Maine, I think it was near Augusta, um, the car started making a funny noise. And I was like, oh, man, we're still five hours from home. We're like, what is going on? And it started getting louder and louder. I'm like, we better pull off at the next rest area here and just check this thing out. So none of us know anything about cars. I still don't. But um, I know you got to put gas in, but that's about it. So we pulled over. We popped the hood. I don't even know why. Why do people do that? Like, well, I can't fix it, but we're going to look anyway, I guess, to see if something's smoking or something, but I can't do anything about it. But So we pop the hood, we're looking, and we don't know even what we're looking at. What is that? What, I don't know. So we're there, and we're like, we could clearly tell uh, that we shouldn't be driving this anymore. I don't know now if it was the water pump, the radar, I can't remember what it was, but something serious enough that we, weren't, we couldn't drive it any further. And we're five hours away from home on Interstate 95 North, heading back to Canada, and uh, we're just like, oh, man, we could really be stuck here for a really long time. I said, well, before we freak out or anything, no cell phones back then. I'm like, why don't we just take a minute and pray? I know you think you're the pastor. You're just making that up. But I honestly did say that. I chose either my desperation or something. So we sat in the car, and we're just like, okay, God, we're in trouble here. We need, we need, really need your help. Like, we're, how are we going to get home for school tomorrow and all this stuff? And what are we going to do? We just pray, please send us help in Jesus' name. Amen. 
As soon as I opened my eyes, this van pulled up beside me really fast. A lady jumped out and ran inside. I looked over because it caught my eye. I'm like, it's Carrie Allison, this guy who's the, the, uh, the principal of the middle school in Sussex, New Brunswick. On our, and, and he goes to our church. He's an elder in our church. And he, he's a, he has a, a, a seven-pastor van, and just him and his wife are in it. And it's totally empty. He literally, as soon as we said amen, opened my eyes, he like parked right beside us. On uh, Interstate 95, at all the different rest areas along the way, he just happened to stop at that one. As soon as I said amen, he pulled in. So we tell him the story, what's going on? He goes, I got lots of room. You can jump in and ride home with us. And so we did that. We left, it, left our friend Greg's car there, and he had to come back and get it later. But um, the funny part of the story was that the reason why he pulled over in such a hurry was his wife had diarrhea. So uh, I don't know if that's part of the sovereignty of God of that story or not. But it worked for us that day. And so we, she, uh, he, she didn't tell us that. He told us that on the drive home. And we laughed so hard. Like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. We thought it was so funny. We get back to, uh, we get back to church. Somehow in church, our pastor found out about it. And he goes, can you share about that story in Sunday school? Like, you want me to share about her having died? No, no, not that part. Just share about how God, I mean, that's a pretty wild story. I'm like, yeah. So the next week in Sunday school, I shared to the adult class about that story. But I did tell that part, too, because <laughs> it's just funny to me. So anyway, but we love um, the sovereignty of God, how he does work things out sometimes like that for us, that we just don't have any idea how something can work out, but yet somehow he has a plan and he works things out. So we're going to talk about some things today, some really difficult topics in the Bible. And I don't know if I've ever really totally talked about this here or not, maybe in passing, but I've been going through this sovereignty teaching and I feel like God wants me to look at sovereignty of God in the area of predestination and some of those kind of words that you say those words and people are like, oh man, you say it in some circles, hopefully not this one today, <laughs> but it ruffles a few feathers because it's tough to think about the sovereignty of God without your mind eventually going to the thoughts of predestination. So I'm going to look at that today and talk about this and how we balance the truth of God's sovereignty, but also our free will. And then how does all of the other stuff play in there as well? So... Does the fact that God is in charge mean that everything in our lives comes from his hand? Okay. Many people believe this. Many people say things like, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Who invented that saying? I'm going to say, what are you, Sherlock Holmes? Like, come on. Like, what, because of gravity? I mean, like, what, everything happens for a reason? There's really no logic in that statement except for, duh. Like, if I kick this chair, I kick the chair, the chair's going to move. Is that everything happens for a reason? But yet we put this into our Christian theology of stuff, like that everything that happens in our life came from the hand of God because we know everything happens for a reason. You look back, look in spiritual, but it's absolute foolishness. Okay? Yes, good things. Every good and perfect gift comes from your Father. Okay, but there's other things can come in your life that did not come from your father, and you need to discern which is which, and not just sit back and say, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Okay, ignorance is bliss, but I'm just telling you, it's not good for you. All right, so are we just puppets moved and controlled in whatever way God wants us to move in this world? Or on the flip side, and just as bad, or did God create us with, with free will, and then just give us our own choices, good and bad, and just leave you on your own. It has no interaction in our life. Just, all right, good luck. I hope you make it, and just leave you there. Or there's some kind of balance between the two. And so to me, it's obvious balance between the two, but it's hard to sometimes separate God's sovereignty and our free will. I mean, some of you may have not spent much time talking about this, because remember the first time I mentioned it to some friends. Actually, it was, I think it was the same friends, my brother and Greg, in the car, brought up this question about the sovereignty of God, and if God's sovereign, then 
Does it mean things are everything's predetermined? Does this mean that he predetermined that this person's going to hell and this person's going to heaven? All these kind of questions. And he's like, dude, I've never thought about that in my life. You're frying my brain right now. I'm like, you've never thought about that? I thought about that a lot. Like, he goes, why? He goes, I don't know. I just have. Because, <laughs> but we're going to look at some of those questions today. And I don't know if you uh, were like my friend and never thought about it before, or if you were like me that thought about it too much. But, um, I was just trying to understand God, understand how this works. So we're going to look at some questions like um, the balance of these things. Is God's absolute, he is absolute sovereign and has absolute power over everything. He is in charge. And people say that sometimes. And sometimes I don't like when I hear them say, well, he's in charge. It depends on what, what they mean when they say that. If it's the same meaning of everything happens for a reason, it's like, ugh. But if it's like, he's the boss, he has the final say, then like, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to look at this because we're going to look at some of the most, to me, the most difficult portion of Scripture in the area of predestination, God's sovereignty. Um, in Romans 9, we're going to look at that and look at some of those questions about Pharaoh and different things. And just going to try to go through that today. So I'm hoping I don't ruffle feathers and I'm hoping you send grace my way because this is not always an easy thing to talk about. But it's in the Bible and it needs to be talked about. Okay, it's important to understand God. So. Again, when you think of the words sovereignty and predestined, you can't really have the word sovereignty without the thought eventually coming to your mind of predestination. If God does know everything at the same time, did he predetermine if this person was going to go to heaven or hell? Did he predetermine the choices Pharaoh made before he made them? Did he predetermine your choices that you made before he made them? Or does he just know them? And there's a big difference between the two, okay? Knowing them and predetermining them, then what the heck are we doing here? Like, if we're just literally puppets to entertain each other or whatever we're doing here, um, that, to me, is a, is a I don't know, kind of a perversion of God's character and nature. But, you know, a lot of people believe that. And a lot of people aren't sure what they believe. It's on a scale of, well, how sovereign is he? Or how much influence does he have in my life? Well, the reality is there's a partnership going on. And I think he'll be more sovereign in our life if we let him. Now, I don't mean he can't supersede and do things. Of course he can. He's God. He can do what he wants. Absolutely. But when we're co-laboring with him, when we give him our yes, when you step in a situation where you know he sent you to and there's nothing you can do when you get there other than rely on God, and then he supersedes and you see his intervention like, oh, God is sovereignly with me. But if you stayed at home and didn't do anything, guess what you would have missed out on? Is he still sovereign? Yeah, but I think there's part of it, there's the free, that balance of free will and sovereignty is a, is a challenge in our hearts. God is not going to make you do anything. He's not going to make you pray in tongues. I tell that to people when I pray for people. He's not going to reach down, grab your tongue, and wiggle it or pray in English. He's not going to make you tithe. He's not going to make you go to church. He's not going to make you do, well, I just don't feel like it. Well, guess what? He's not going to make you feel like it. He told you, here's my heart for you. Here's what I want you to do, but it's up to us if we choose to do it. So he is the boss. He is in charge, and he is sovereign, but just how far that goes, different people vary on what they believe. You know, John Calvin taught a lot of things on the sovereignty of God. That's where uh, the Baptist churches come from, Presbyterians come from. They follow a lot of his doctrine. You know what? He gets a bad rap because a lot of his theology is really good. But then it depends on how far you go on his five-point scale of Calvinism. Um, there's, there's people in the Presbyterian church I've talked to. Some of them believe. I'm really jumping around my notes. hope you can follow me anyway. But um, a lot of people believe that God predetermines who's going to heaven, by the, call them the elect, and who's going to hell, call them the damned. And he and they've already predetermined all that. And um, I don't know if I want to pray to that God. Or if I don't know if I want to know the God that they're talking about. Because that's just not how I see him. 
But at the same time, if that really is how God is, I kind of want to know that too. So we can't just shut the door to that. So since God is, he, he knows the decisions we're going to make for it, we make them. Did he predetermine your decisions that you make? And again, if he knows who's going to be saved and who's going to be damned before he created them, did he, does he just know them or did he predetermine them? Okay, tough questions, right? Now you can take a moment and pray for me. <laughs> Bless you. Yeah, because it's a, it's, not a, it's a challenging thing sometimes to talk about. But we're going to look at these questions today with the help of the Lord and just show you what I feel is true. I've had conversations with other Presbyterian pastors because I assume that they believe something different than me sometimes. And when I actually talked to them, it wasn't as different as I thought it was. And uh, it was quite relieving. So I was like, hi, I'm not, a, I'm not way off my rocker here. And, or, or they aren't either. So the first question we're going to look at, look at these questions is, um, is every move we make predetermined by God? Every move. And then that definitely overlaps. If it's all predetermined by God, did he create people predetermined for heaven or hell? Okay, because there are verses in the Bible that makes it sound like that. Okay, I'm going to read you some today. But then I'm going to show you what I believe it's talking about. So we're going to look at Romans 9. You can follow on the screen. You can, have, you can open your own Bible. I would, I would recommend you taking some notes on this because I cut a lot of hours in this, and you guys might not have any, depending on how much you've studied or read it. And you can get a, a good jump into some of these things. That is, one day someone's going to ask you something, or they'll make a statement that's totally against something you might believe. And we should always be ready to have a reason for the hope that we have. Amen. So we're going to look at Romans 9. These are some, some of these verses sometimes when I read them growing up, I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I like that. I don't know. I don't know if I like that, God. I don't know if I like that about you. We're going to look at this and see what he's saying. Romans 9, start in verse 10. It says, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, so election is not a, a Presbyterian word. It's in the Bible, just, just saying. Okay? Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, just as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, as anyone, we're in church, remember, okay? Has anyone ever struggled with reading that? Thank you. Because I have too, not just, I mean, a long time ago and even recently. But then when I look at the nature and character of God, I go, this has to have more to it than that. And so I'll show you what the more is in a minute. We're going to keep reading verse 14. When they, when they oh, what then shall we say, is God unjust? Not at all. For Moses, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Still not make me feel better yet. Um, and it really probably won't until we get to the end. I show you some of these things. But anyway, 16. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Okay, you guys still here? All right, I'll skip it for now. 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? He's saying, if God predetermined I'm going to act like this, why is he mad at me for doing the things he's making me do? Right? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Show what is formed... Uh, 
Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? I tell you what, I've said that to God before. <laughs> I was like, I know Paul's saying you shouldn't probably do that. Like, why the heck did you make me like this? Then if you didn't want me to be like, you know, I have. I don't know if I was supposed to, but I, I have. 21. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Now, here's the really tough ones. If you haven't been challenged already, verse 22 and 23. What if... God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. You can read it in a lot of different versions, and it basically says the same thing. I would have picked an easier one. Um, but, yeah, that's tough, isn't it? Okay, verse 23. And what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? So again, a very challenging portion of Scripture, but it is a Scripture. It isn't God's Word. It is the Word of God. Amen? Okay, but our proper interpretation of this is very, very important. Okay? I'm sure you've heard, maybe you've heard it well, maybe you haven't, but I'm sure you've heard, we've all heard it wrong too. <laughs> right? So um, in our text, the Apostle Paul mentions Rebekah. He mentions Jacob and Esau. He mentions Moses, and he mentions Pharaoh, okay? Those are the people he mentions in, the, in this text. We're going to mostly look at Jacob and Esau and Pharaoh because they're the main ones of this text who he was referring to. So in verse 11 and 12, it says this, Before the twins were born, before they had done anything good or bad, God said, Let the older serve the younger, and that, and the, and that he loved Jacob and, Jacob and hated Esau. So that's really tough, right? Before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, what made God say that? I mean, the older served the younger, ah, it's not that big a deal. I can relate to that with my brother. But <laughs> it's plain. But, uh, but, but saying, like, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, I'm like, that's really strong, right? So did God hate Esau without reason? Did he hate a little baby before that baby was even born? Does that sound like the nature and character of God to you? But when you read it, um, it kind of sounds like this. So it's very important when you read verses like these that are very difficult to understand to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Let the Word interpret the Word, not just assume and take it over here and like, oh, my gosh, it must mean this and it must mean that. So let's look at a few more verses in the Bible that talk about hate. 1 John 3.15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But the Bible just said that God hated Esau, okay? So another verse, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of, shall be danger of counsel. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So just a thought, wouldn't you think that God saying he hated Esau before he had done anything good or bad, wouldn't it be the same as hating him without reason? And wouldn't that make God in danger of judgment if you're just holding it to what the word he just said? So clearly there must be some other understanding to this because Jesus on the earth wasn't preaching hate. He was saying, love your brothers, do good to your enemies, right? Forgive your enemies. They tell you to go one mile, go with them too. It's it a total mercy, forgiveness ministry Jesus had. Uh, um, so... There must be, for me, there has to be another way to understand this because the Bible does not contradict itself. 
I know many people you've probably witnessed to have told you the Bible is full of contradictions. It's really not. It's what contradicts what the contradiction is is our understanding of what God's really saying. Okay, there is a tension there, but it's not a contradiction. So first of all, I want to tell you that God didn't say that he hated Esau before he was born. Okay? You're like, wait a minute, Pastor, what are you saying? Well, I'm gonna show you. He didn't say that before he was born. In Romans 9, 12, Paul said he's uh, he's this is a quote from Genesis 25, 23. This is what this says. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So that's the quote from Romans 9, 12. Nothing there about him hating Esau at all yet, okay? So the question here to think about is, is this referring to just Jacob and Esau, or is this referring to two nations? Okay, it says, two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall, uh, shall be separated from your body. The context was nation, even though it was referring to Jacob and Esau. But there's two nations in there. You can think of the nation of the Jewish nation and the Gentile nation. You can think of two nations like that or other ones. Uh, and I think that's what God's really saying here. But it could be symbolic of the nation of Israel again and, and also the, the Jewish nation, the Gentile nation. Now I want to show you again the next part, verse 13 of Romans. Paul said that just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Well, here he's quoting from the book of Malachi. Okay? If you know the book of Malachi, that's which book in the Bible, in the Old Testament? The last one. So I'm pretty sure it's long after Jacob and Esau were dead. Right? If you don't know it, well, just trust me that it is. It's long after they're dead. So verse 2, this is where this comes from. It's uh, Malachi 1, 2, and 3. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say... In what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I, I hate, I've hated, and laid waste the mountains in his heritage from the jackals of the wilderness. So, again, I want you to notice here, he did say at the beginning that uh, the older would serve the younger. But he didn't say before he was born, before he had done anything good or bad, he said at the end of his life, way after the end of his life, that he hated him. Okay, and even hated is not even a great word here. Even though it can be transferred, translated hate, it can also be translated to love less or to prefer. I wish translators would have used those words. It would have helped me a whole lot better. I guess I needed to dig and study. He preferred them. Okay? Why? This is my opinion. But I believe because this, he said that after he lived, that Jacob did not value the things of I'm not Jacob. Esau didn't value the things of God. He gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. Here, Jacob was ready to lie, cheat, steal, fight, wrestle with God or an angel all night long for the blessing and these things. Even though he didn't go about maybe all that the right way with his deception and stuff, he showed value for the things of God. And he wanted them in his life. He even he had to cheat and steal for them. Where his brother was like, I don't care. You can have it. Just give me some soup. I'll sign whatever you want me to sign. It's over. And you know what? I do think God still loved Esau. He definitely did. Look at the story when they were reconciled back together. He had his big caravan of stuff. God blessed him. Jacob had his big caravan of stuff. He did love him. He did bless him. But he preferred Jacob because I believe he preferred his passion over the passivity of his brother. Okay? So that helped me, and I hope it helps you too on that part. Now, let's Jacob and Esau. Let's look at Pharaoh now. Again, some other tough scriptures. The scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this purpose, that I may display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden. I'm not going to go through the whole part of that, but the part I want to just point out, kind of in passing, is the fact that 
The Bible says that uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart three times before God hardened his heart. Okay, three times. And if you think about the story, Moses comes to him and says, hey, let my people go. No. He does these miracles. All right, he throws the rod down, becomes a snake. He's not impressed. He has magicians do that too. But then he does this other one. He sticks his hand in his jacket, pulls it out, and it's all leprous. I'm like, oh, man. I'd, I would say, hey, let me pray for you, Pharaoh. Come here. Like, like that'd be like where he puts it back in and disappears. He still didn't change. Then, he, then God's like, okay, I'm going to send these ten plagues. And, he's, and if you read it, it says, I'm sending the plagues against the gods of Egypt. It doesn't say against the people of Egypt. It says against the gods of Egypt because they had all these foreign gods they were worshiping, didn't know who the one true God was. So he goes through the ten plagues, and each time Moses comes back after each one of them and says, let my people go. Let my people go. And every time Pharaoh said no until, of course, you know, the tenth one. But even then he changed his mind on his go to come back and try to get him. So I want you to keep that in mind. When it says that God hardens, who wants to harden that? But uh, now we'll go to 9, 22 and 23. It says, what if God, remember this is still talking about Pharaoh, okay, still in context of Pharaoh. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience? Did he, was he not very patient with Pharaoh? I think he was. The objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. And what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? So again, the subject person in context was talking about Pharaoh, okay? So again, God was very patient with Pharaoh. Uh, let's see. Um, the first thing I want to point out with, yeah, okay, sorry. Second thing I want to show you is that Paul did not say this is the way that God is. He said, what if? He said, what if? Twice, didn't he? So it says, meaning it might be, but then it not be the way how God does things, okay? 21, again, the verse before, in verse 21, said this, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special use or purposes and some for common use? Yet God has, so he's, his point was, God has the right to do what he wants to do, okay? So did God create uh something for common use and others for special use? Does he do that? Possibly, maybe. Some people are have a call of God to do this or that, whatever someone's might seem like more common. But does the creator of the clay make a pot of clay just for the sake of destroying it? Do you know anyone who makes it? I mean, if they messed up on it, like, is, I mean, you've ever made pottery. I haven't, but I watched it. They make it look super easy, but Holly told me it's not easy at all until you get the hang of it. But even when they make an ugly bowl, I've seen some, I bring home, look at this, this is an ugly bowl. They don't break it, they like, look what I made, right? So some of you might feel like ugly bowls, just kidding. <laughs> but uh, God did not predetermine you or design you for destruction, right? He, doesn't, he says he made one for common use, but there's a difference between common use and special purposes. It's not the same thing as objects of wrath and objects of mercy. Those are not the same, that's a way different thing, isn't it? Are you guys following me? All right, good. We're going to look a little deeper into Romans 9, 22 and 23. I'm going to show you what some of these words mean. I'm going to read it again to you. Because it is important to understand this. Because if we are predetermined to go to heaven or hell before we've done anything good or bad, why bother to pray for your neighbor? Why bother to pray for your friend or loved one who's in jail, who's going through something? Why bother to pray at all? Why like the old text says, eat, drink, be merry, for today we live and tomorrow we die. What is the purpose of us being here if everything is predetermined? 
Romans 9, 22 and 23. We're going to look at this deeper. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his, his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? So we're going to look at these phrases, the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction, and the object of mercy, uh, who, whom he prepared in advance for glory. We're going to look at those phrases and, and tell you what they mean. So the objects, the first one, object of his wrath, we're looking at um, the word objects there is the word for vessels. Okay, it can mean vessels. And then the word, uh, okay, the word uh, objects here literally means vessels or containers. So they, they are some, they are vessels or containers of wrath or they're vessels or containers filled with wrath. Okay, you can put it that way. Vessels or containers filled with wrath. So in the context of what he was talking about, again, was Pharaoh. Okay? All right, we're going to keep going. The word prepared here literally means fitted or joined together. So prepared, there's, there's, prepared is in both of these phrases, but they're two different words in the, in the original language. And this one here means fitted or joined together. So this could mean uh, that God fitted or prepared the person for wrath, but it can also mean that the person fitted himself or prepared himself for the days of wrath. It can mean either one, depending on how you, if you read it in this tense or that tense, and I read commentaries, they're not sure what tense it's supposed to be in. They have some that say it's this way, some that say it's that way, but I think you have to interpret the word to the consistency of Scripture, all right? So let me read it again in case you didn't get it. This can be translated that uh, God fitted or prepared the person for wrath, but it can also mean that the person fitted or prepared themselves for wrath, okay? Which do you think sounds more consistent with the, God's nature in the Bible? Right? The second one? Okay. Look at this verse in Romans 2 5. But because of your stubbornness of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Okay? Consistency with Scripture. So were the object of wrath? Yeah, but it was self inflicted, it wasn't predetermined. They were, everyone who's not saved, it's talking about here, because of our stubbornness of our heart, uh, unrepentant heart, we are storing up wrath for ourselves for the day of judgment, unless we're born again and saved already. Then we were delivered from wrath. We're translated out of the kingdom into a new kingdom, okay? So when you look at it that way, in the, the whole, well, some other verses of Scripture, that can make you take a breath of like, okay, your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones that aren't saved yet, they're not predetermined to hell. And there's two different sovereignties of God, and they, and they talk about Presbyterian Church. There's a sovereignty of, uh, sovereignty of God in the area of predestination for heaven. There's one that predestination for hell. And most of the people I've heard talk in, in Presbyterian meetings, most of them say they believe that God's sovereign or people that go to heaven. They call that election. But he's not sovereignly as far as predetermined those who are going to hell. Now, there are a couple I heard said they believe both, and it's from Romans 9, and it's from how they understand that. But the majority of them I talk to, they do, not, they do not believe that, okay? I don't believe that either. So look at the second one. Objects of his mercy, whom he prepared, advance for glory. Again, the word objects here means vessels, and those who are saved is, are who he's talking about, and he calls them object, objects or vessels of his mercy, so those who are born again, those who are saved now, we're now objects or vessels of his mercy. That's good, huh? And the word here, prepared, is not the same word as prepared in verse 22. 
It doesn't mean fitted or joined together like verse 22 does. It has a, it's a different word. And this word means, let me find it here. Sorry. I'm going to leave you in suspense. It means something good. Okay, I can't find it, but anyway, I remember basically what it means. It means prepared in advance. So he, or prepared beforehand. So the object of his mercy, it says he did prepare in advance for glory. To see his glory, to see his goodness. But the object of his wrath, it said they were fitted for it. Now, whether they fitted themselves or God fitted them, I think they fitted themselves by their choices and, and their stubborn heart, refusal to repent, like the Bible says. Um, but these are important truths to know, right? And when you're reading Romans 9, you were, like me, you can re- read it quick without going through commentaries or looking up what original words mean and things like that. Because a lot of Greek words, you can have five words for one word. Like that it means different things. And, they, and the, com- the translator is just picking the one he thinks is the best. So going back to the original question, if God knows decisions we're going to make before we make them, did he predetermine them? No. All right? Or there'd be no free will. And if God knows who's going to be saved and damned before even they were born, did he predetermine it? And I think the best answer to this question, these questions found in the previous chapter, and that's of Romans 8. And a lot of Presbyterians that are five-star Calvinists have a really tough time with this verse, and they try to they try to twist it to mean something different. And I, I kind of enjoy watching them squirm sometimes when I sit, read this verse. Because when, when you're in a debate over the sovereignty of God or predestination, Romans 9 is going to come up. That chapter, look, he didn't even do anything good yet. They weren't even born yet. God predetermined all this. And, and getting this. But the previous chapter said this, verse Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So I want you to notice the foreknowledge was before the predestination, okay? And secondly, it says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, not predestined to heaven or hell. Doesn't it? We are predestined, yes, we are, through his foreknowledge, okay? God, I, I, when I, they argue this, I just say, so you think God just has a switch and just turns his foreknowledge off and just randomly makes these choices? Or is he all of God at all the same time? He's the Alpha and the Omega at all at the same time. And he knows the decisions we're going to make before we make it. So even though he knows it doesn't mean he predetermined it. But it's his, through his foreknowledge, he knew what I was going to do and what I say. He says, before words on my lips, he knows it. Before I know what I'm going to say, he says it. I did say, before I, I say, yeah, you know what I mean. Before I say it, he knows it. All right. So God's foreknowledge is before predestination. Now, I know these things are maybe not your... Christmas sermon you're hoping for today or whatever. But um, this is what I felt like God was challenging me to speak on because it is hard to talk about. It is hard to think about. You're, when you have arguments with people or you come to you, you talk about sovereignty, predestination. This, if, if they've thought about it a while, this is going to come up. And I think you knowing what these words mean, some of the original meanings of it, knowing that God didn't say he hated Esau until after he was dead. And it didn't even necessarily mean hate. It can mean hate, but it also means to love less or to prefer which is more consistent with the whole book of the Bible, not just one verse. When he teaches not to hate, to love our enemies. So, um, so I believe that God does know every decision that we're going to make before we make him, and he knows our ultimate outcome, but I do not believe that it's because he knows it, he's predetermined it. Okay? Predetermination to me is, and God forgive me if you're more like this than I know, but um, that's kind of sick.
Like, why, why is this, it be just this entertaining of, entertainment of him, like, whatever? Like, that's, that's not God. But if he really loves his children, he did create you with a purpose, a plan, and, and, and a calling. But it's now part of our free will, part of our heart, our giving God our yes, to walk in the things he's predetermined for us to do. Didn't he say his works prepared in advance for us to walk in? But how do we walk in those things that we sit in on our blessed assurance and don't do anything God asks us to do? And we just like think, okay, sarah, sarah, God's sovereign. He's going to make me, everything's just going to work out. We don't have to do anything and it's just all going to work out. No, we are co-laborers with God. It's a father-son relationship. It's a partnership. And he has works prepared for you in advance, but he is not going to make you do them. So, praise God. <laughs> I know that's heavy, but I, I, um, but I do feel like if it was, if it, thank you. Um, Maybe this is for me, because uh, I have been working out these things for quite a while. Honestly, I mean, I've been so honest with you guys. Anyway, might as well keep going. When I first started working at a Presbyterian church, I was embarrassed because of what I thought they believed and what I, and the reputation of what you hear with the frozen chosen and all this kind of stuff. And you know, I, I know this is not a typical Presbyterian church. Praise God, right? Praise God for that. And we're going to get a new sign soon. We're taking it off the sign just because some people don't come here because they think it's the, the Presbyterian version that's out there that's not good right now. It's really not good. The, not the one we're in, but the mainline Presbyterian church, their theology and what they believe and teach is really messed up and perverted. Sick, gross, disgusting. Honestly, you can look it up. You know, it's in the news sometimes. But um, I was a little bit embarrassed because uh, I didn't, I, I was... I was taught different things, and I had, I had to wrestle through this, some of this sovereignty stuff. And I didn't know what I believed, but I thought about it. I had friends making fun of me back home saying, so you left the Wesleyan church because you want to be more in a more spirit-filled environment, and you went to a Presbyterian church? I don't get that. I said, I don't get that either, but I didn't, I'm just going where God sent me to go. I'm just doing what he said yes to do. He told me to leave there. He told me to say yes to this, and that's what I did. And so um, I'm not embarrassed of it anymore. There's a lot of good theology in the Presbyterian church. There's a lot of good theology in the Baptist churches. There's a lot of good theology in the Methodist churches. We know in part, we prophesy in part. We all have our blind spots and weaknesses, but I do thank God we can agree on that God loves us, and he has a plan to prosper us, not to hurt us, give us hope in the future, and he does have, uh, he has good things in store for us, but he, need, he wants, I wouldn't say need, but he wants your yes. And on the other side of your net, yes, which has been the, the theme of the worship and everything this morning, is great and awesome things. What if Paul didn't say yes? You may be blind. I'm not going to do that. I'm not. Forget that. You knocked me to the ground. That hurt. I'm not going to do that. These guys stoned me, whipped me, beat me. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there. They're going to kill me. What if Peter said no? What if John and all that said no? Where would we be today? What if Mary said no? I'm sure they would have found someone else, but thank God they said yes. And I just think sometimes today we get so caught up in Right now, politics and how big that is. And it is a big topic. It's not a little thing. It's a big thing. But at the same time, God is still in charge, the boss. And again, I'm not saying every single thing. I'm not saying that. You heard the whole sermon. So, but I was, he is still the boss. And no matter who wins, who doesn't win, coming up or whatever, the church is the one who's really in charge. Okay? They're subject to us and to our God. It's our prayers, but if we believe that, well, you know, God's sovereign, everything happens for a reason, you know, well, we're just going to wait for the rapture church and get out of here. 
I mean, what a defeated church. Weak, wimpy, ugh. That's like lukewarm, want to spit you out of my mouth stuff. We are the sons and daughters of God. We represent him and his kingdom. His kingdom knows no end. The garment will be upon his shoulders. Okay, we, we, The church is in charge. And as I say we, we're in charge of the government, we're in charge of everything. And because we're, we're, we have to rule and dominion over uh, principalities and powers and things that God put us over. And if we come into agreement, we come into agreement in prayer and blessing our nation, blessing those that don't agree with us, blessing other denominations or whoever doesn't agree with us, I think we're going to see more powerful things we've ever seen before. Because God is sovereign. He is in charge. If he had a, begin, he had a plan for the beginning, I know he's got a good plan for the end. And God is not a loser. He's a winner. And he said, you're a winner. He said, you're more than a conqueror through Christ. You're more than. We're more than. We're never less than. We're always more than. Amen? Because of him. So I just want to encourage you guys with that. We, I think we can get, um, I'm, I'm involved in politics. I vote. I couldn't before because I was Canadian. But once I got my citizenship, I voted here. And I voted every time. I haven't missed any that I, I, I know of. And it's important to do our, I've served on jury duties. And I've done, and it's important. I love America. I love our, this country. I love how it's founded. It's to me, after I had to study to become a, a citizen, um, I love how it was founded, the principles, the, all the stuff. I love it. It's great. There is no other country. Israel's in there somewhere, but there is no other country that was founded quite like this. And so I just believe God's going to honor the prayers of the saints before us, the hard work of those that gave their lives for this place, and we're gonna, we are going to see a turnaround. But if we're focused on the, oh, Joe Biden's doing this, and this guy's doing that, oh, no, poor us. Man, come on. It's, he's sovereign. He's sovereign. He's, he said, yeah, I got the kings in the palm of my hand. I can move them any way I want to. But sometimes he's waiting on a timing. He's on a timing of this, time of that. Or we're upset this guy or we, or because Georgia didn't work out or Arizona didn't work out or whatever. And you know what? I was upset about all that. I was. But I still have to rewind, back up, look back. God has a bigger plan than just us winning some elections. He has a bigger plan than uh, us just winning this or that. You know, the country wasn't that great uh, in 2020 and during Trump's term, too. I mean, it was, and some things I liked better. I was more comfortable in it. But there still needs a whole lot of stuff. When our schools are this way and the country's this way and the, the police are having problems because of the defunding and all the different things, our country needs Jesus. And that's going to come through the church, not through the government. I mean, our church, the church is going to infiltrate that, and they are, but it's going to come from the head of the church, which is Jesus, okay? And so I want us to not to get off focused on these things. Uh, it can be a part of our life, but the central point of our life is God is sovereign. He is in charge, and if I say yes to what he wants me to say yes to, we're going to see miraculous, powerful things in the people's lives around us, and it's going to change our country, our communities, and the world, just like the apostles did. They're just men, but they said yes. Amen. So you guys stand, I want to pray for you and bless you guys. Hope this was encouraging. I do love this country. I really do. I hope God never calls me back to Canada, to be honest. I hope you're not watching, Mom. But, um, but uh, not, <laughs> they got, we have problems here. They got problems there, too. They're trying to take their guns. I don't like that either. But um, and other things, their children. But um, but I still love Canada. I still pray for Canada. And uh, one of my friends told me recently that he felt like 
God was calling some Canadians to be healers to the nations. And I was like, what do you mean? Where did you get that from? He goes, he goes, I just felt like God said it to me. And then you look at the only flag I know of that has a leaf for an emblem, which we, we've been made fun of forever, is <laughs> weak and wimpy. Oh, maple leaf, what's that about? But the leaves on the trees are for the healing of the nations. And I'm like, yeah, God, let's do what we got to do. And I don't care if Canadian or who you are. That's not the point. But that's the heart of God. The fruit on the tree of our lives should bring healing to the nations. The fruit on our trees. And as we're connected to the head, connected to the vine, if we abide in him and he abides in us, whatever we ask will be given to us. We're, we're going to have that natural flow of life. Everything we touch will be teeming with life. And that's the ministry prophesied over this church was every ministry we have is going to be teeming with life. Amen. So, God, I thank you for your church. We've got a bad name sometimes. We've made, we've made mistakes in the local church and the church overall. And Man, we just need you in big ways. But, God, I pray we will not take a back seat to things you call us to do. We not be intimidated to love people. We not be intimidated to not show love or intimidated to hold our tongue, but... Also, when we do speak, let it be seasoned with salt. Let it be filled with love. If we don't love them, we shouldn't say anything. God, I thank you. We, we say yes. We don't know what it's going to look like. But I know it's going to be good. And it's going to be fun. Because the best adventures of our life are on the other side of our yes. And I bless your children right now. I pray you give them boldness, confidence to trust you with their life, with their life, that they may walk in abundant life that you've given for us. He who loses his life will find it. He who finds his life will lose it. So, God, I bless your children right now, and I thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Merry Christmas. Love you. We'll uh, talk to you later.